All right. So, like, this kind of stinks because, like, just timing-wise, because I know that you guys started a new book after being for like 20 years in Acts. Um, like, start, started First Peter last week, and now I'm going to bump you to a different book because we've been going through James down there, and I'm I was too lazy to write something just for you, so I'm going back and recalling a sermon that I just did. So, James chapter one is where I want you to go, and I know right where Bridgeport is. Um, it's been a, I, I basically spent my, my summers growing up in Bishop because my grandparents lived there, which is just rad country, too bad it's California. And then, um, and then we spent a lot of time fishing up on the northern side, uh, June Lake Loop, stuff like that. Bridgeport, in fact, me and my wife almost bought the Bridgeport Bakery at one time. We were looking at buying that bakery, but we, we knew we would have ate all the profits, so we like totally, like it didn't last long. It was short-lived, but um, Bridgeport's a beautiful country. This is too much that we're taking today, like I know that. Um, and when I preached it down in La Pine, I actually uh, took it in two halves, and then I thought I had this great idea this week when I knew I was preaching here that I was going to like squeeze both those sermons together, and it wasn't a good idea. So um, I know that Brent has gotten you guys to like a 30-minute diet on sermons. This is going to be a little bit longer than that. Hopefully it won't like feel super long. Um, but um, there's going to be a lot here, and I also want you to know that what we're about to talk about today um, was not pre-planned for you. Like that, there was no, um, I did not uh, sit and think like, what, what does the congregation up in Three Rivers need to hear? And then like, I'm going to scold you with this because this is pretty, like pretty heavy stuff. Just happens to be where we've been down in Lapine. Okay, so no, nothing personal. Whatever happens is God's fault, not mine. Okay, let's read it. Uh, we're going to go James chapter 1, verse 19 to 27, which says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I don't like that verse. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's a lot in here. Like a lot of stuff, but we're going to go ahead and we're not going to do it much just, much justice, but we're going to kind of um, we're just going to do a flyover on this deal. All right. Um, there's a verse, I think it's it, it's it's Romans 12 two. do not be um, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we, we have this thing that looks possible that Paul tells us about in Romans 12. Um, and I want that as a believer, and I would hope that you want that as a child of God, but it, it doesn't exactly spell out how that's done. 
and this is part of what I love about the book of James, is um, there's so much practicality there that, that, that James, if we, if we just look at it for what he's saying and what it is, um, is, is giving us some very basic instructions, things that help us get from here to here as far as being transformed and renewed in our minds. And I believe that this little section right here does it really well. Um, I hate to say that it's a formula, um, but that there is a bit of a formula that James actually gives us here um, for victorious and God-glorifying Christian living. Um, and I don't know about you, but I want that. Um, I'm extremely imperfect. Um, I can't stand living with myself. Um, I am my own worst enemy and critic most of the time. Um, and, and the only thing that's good about all that is, is that it's because I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be the guy that I used to be. I don't want to think the way that I used to think and do the things that I used to do. I want, I want Jesus. I want more Jesus in me, um, in my mind, in my heart, in my actions, um, in my life. Um, and so that's part of what I love so much about what James is giving us here. He's giving us a gift that can can help us now that we've been reborn, now that Jesus has done all the heavy lifting and we're forgiven and we're positionally right before God. Now um, there are things that we can now walk in to become more like the one who saved us. And uh, that's really what this is all about, right? Uh, Why do we exist on earth? We exist on earth to glorify God with every aspect of who we are and what we do. That's done best through the gospel and the gospel is sometimes done best by living out the love of Christ to the world around us. And uh, this church, that this people that James writing to had some issues. Um, and one of them that's really clear if we start looking at this is that they had a problem with their mouth. Is there anyone in here who has a problem with their mouth? I have a problem with my, <laughs> with my mouth. And, uh, and we know it not just from the first few verses of our text this morning, but if you turn into chapter 2, which we're not going to do, actually chapter 3, almost the entire chapter is dedicated to these people getting control of their mouth. Like they apparently did not know how to talk well to each other. They did not know how to communicate well or deal well with um, each other in the church there. And so that's one of the things that um, he talks about here, and that's part of where our text starts this morning. And it's funny, there's this, there's a story, um, everyone knows who Socrates was? Everyone knows who Socrates is? He was a philosopher. Um, he was also a school teacher. And uh, there, there was a day when a young student came to him, and um, this young man came in and was introduced to him, and before Socrates could say a word, uh, this young man starts talking, and he talked for like 10 minutes. He just kept going. And uh, finally, when the young man finished, Socrates said, I'll take you as a student, but I'm going to have to charge you twice as much. And uh, the young man says, why are you going to charge me double? And he says, because first I'm going to have to teach you how to hold your tongue, and then I'm going to have to teach you how to use it. Um, The first thing that we see here in this text is that we need to know how to receive the words of life, the things of God that he's revealed to us through his word for ourselves. The first step is reception, right? We're told basically here by James to take the cotton, the cotton out of our ears and to stick it in our mouths, 
right? Which means, and that was one of the first things I was actually told as a young believer over and over again by people like, dude, take the cotton out of your, out of yours and stick it in your mouth. Like, you just need to learn to learn. You need to learn to listen. You need to learn to be a student. And that's basically what James is saying here, is that we need to learn how to be students. Um, one of the first acts of humility, I think, after having a head-on collision with Jesus, should be admitting that we do not know everything. We don't know everything. That's a hard one for me. Um, especially when it comes to life, God, and ourselves. We have to unlearn a lot of junk when we come in here. We've got to erase a lot of files when we meet Jesus and then download a lot of new files. And the way that that happens is if we know that we need to download new files. <laughs> things that are outside of us, things that are foreign to us, things that are different than how we typically think. And what this humble knowledge will do is it will set us on a trajectory to becoming good listeners and thoughtful talkers. It will make us students. One of the other things we should be immediately enlightened about after having a Jesus' encounter is that we ought to regard ourselves as nothing. You and I are not something. You and I are nothing. And we know that in the context of, of, of what it does when you, when you encounter something that's so big, so quantum beyond you, that um, it puts you in your place. You, you tend to see what you really are or what you really aren't, according to what you thought. This is, this is the, the Saul experience. Right? And I don't know about you, but we, we all had, if we've met Jesus, that experience in our own way. Where when you, when you, when you encounter the biggest thing, the biggest person that's ever existed, it makes you feel so low. And the cool thing about that is that that's the best thing that could happen to us. Positionally to, to know how low we are before a holy and perfect and almighty God. One of the biggest lies that's ever existed within a man is one that says that we should say everything that we have to say. I have that problem. I think that if it pops into my mind, if I'm thinking it, other people need to hear it. You know what I mean? Like, what good is it if I keep it to myself? I don't want to be the only one like, this is too good. For, for me to not share. I mean, just ask my wife. Like, I'm super good at this. I have this thing that says, I have to say everything that goes on up here that I think. And it's a, it's a lie. It's not true. This is my, my kryptonite. Um, and I hate it. And I still fall into it over and over and over again. It was about two months ago. I'm heading to church. I'm heading down to Lapine to preach. I'm the preacher, man. And me and my wife are going, we're already having a hard morning. You know what I mean? Like we're not, whenever I'm preaching, like I'm irritable and I hate that about myself, but I'm just, I got a lot of anxiety and I'm not, um, I, I just, she used to tell the kids when they were young, like dad's preaching, like stay away from him. Which is, yeah, which, which, is, which is horrible. Like, horrible. Dad's preaching this week, stay away from him. You know what I mean? Otherwise, you're going to get your head bit off. 
That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And so, like, we're, we're, we get in the car. We already had some tension going on. And she, like, she, like, sends a volley, you know, over. And, uh, and like, I, I, I knew. I knew exactly what my response was going to be back. I knew exactly what I was going to say. And I knew exactly how demonic it was going to be when I said it. How horrible. And I did. I shot it back. And there was just silence for a few seconds between us and the car ride. And she finally looks over at me and she says, and you're going to preach the gospel right now. <laughs> and my first thought was like, you're, like, you're right. Like, no, we got to call this off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'll call chat and tell him, like, I'm not going to make it. Like, it, it, was, it was that bad. It was so bad. Like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be that guy, right? Even though we all are. Like, Jesus is the only thing that, that covers our hypocrisy. <laughs> but my first thought is like, you're right. Like, I'm done. I'm, you know, disqualified from ministry and from friends and from ever having anything good to say again. Like, I just blew it. And then my second thought was, this is exactly why you need to drive that car down there and preach the gospel. Does that make sense? Because there's some other woman that needs to hear that for her husband. And there's some other dude that made the same mistake as I did on the way to church that day. And he needs to hear it. This is exactly why we need the gospel. And the reason why I'm, I'm letting you know this is because even though we're going to get a list of do-goodisms from James, things to go home and do, I want you to know that you will not do them perfectly. And Jesus matters exponentially. This is why we need the gospel. At the end of the day, all we have is Christ. Nothing else. Not our good works. Not our energy that we can muster up to make something happen. It is Christ alone at the end of the day. And I want to establish this here with you and with me again because James is one of those books that's considered um, an exercise in moralism. Some people have even gone so far to think that this book should be thrown out of the Bible because it contradicts letters like, or Pauline theology, like the book of Galatians, which says we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, plus zero works. And then you come to a book like this, and it's a dude giving you all kinds of works and making you feel like you're a failure if you can't walk in them. And so we need to understand that the foundation of Christ's work and righteousness on our behalf through faith alone is the foundation. It's the spring. It, it's the foundation of what James is standing on with everything he's saying. We need to presuppose that. We need to assume that and know that it's true. In fact, I don't, I don't even think we need to assume it. James knows it to be true. If you pop back up to verse 18, actually, let's, let's do 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You know what that is? That's the gospel. That is Pauline theology. You did not earn your salvation, and you are not capable of keeping it. It is a gift from God. Amen? All right. 
One of the biggest biblical solutions that I found with my mouth problem over the years is um, this tremendously helpful little four-word verse spoken by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, which says this, Take every thought captive. Brilliant. Take every thought captive. In other words, we don't have to say everything that comes to our mind. There's a lot of freedom in that. We actually have a choice over what we do with what goes on up here. It actually means that we can take our thoughts prisoner before they take us prisoner. It means that our thoughts can be subject to us instead of us being subject to our thoughts. There's great freedom in that. We can rule them rather than have them rule us. And this is so important because so many of our thoughts are lies. Aren't they? So many of them are false and sinful and hateful and untrue, which is what James follows with next. Be slow to anger. Why? Because that which our head perceives may not line up with what's actually true. But we love to justify our anger anger when we're angry, don't we? Yeah, but that person clearly did me wrong. Yeah, well, we clearly did Jesus wrong. He could have jumped off the cross and, and melted our faces. You know what I mean? Like Indiana Jones style. And he didn't. He stayed put. He stayed put. And he stayed silent. Like a lamb before its shear. Silent. Yeah, but Jesus threw over temp- uh, tables in the temple yard. We say things like that to justify our anger. He threw over tables, you know? Yeah, but Jesus knows how to throw over tables properly. You know what I'm saying? Like you and I don't. We don't throw over tables right. He has a gift of being able to be righteously angry and fully without sin at the same time. We don't. If you and I are not slow to anger, we will only do damage to ourselves and to others, all the while misrepresenting God because our anger does not reflect His well at all. It just doesn't. Just like James says here. This is why some of you need to stay off social media right now. I'm not going to go into this again, but enough said. Our premise might be righteous and right, but our heart is, is usually not. The way we do it usually isn't. The first thing that must occur in order for us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds is to receive that which is able to transform us. In this case, James calls it the implanted word. The implanted word, which is a person first. It's the logos. It is Jesus himself. And, and the whole idea of implanted word sounds, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. This is, guard, this is gardening 101, right? We receive the person and work of Christ by faith, and that seed goes deep inside. And as we water, as we continue to receive the words of life, 
That seed eventually busts open and brings forth something that comes to the surface and then penetrates the surface and then works its way outside of the surface. Right? We actually start walking in good works. But it's not because of you and me. It's because of the implanted word. Right? This is why we tell people all the time like that it's, it's backwards to say that you have to get your life cleaned up so that you can come to God. You come to God, He cleans you up. That's, what Christian, that's how Christianity works. It works from the inside out, not the outside in. And so receiving the implanted word is step number one, which means coming here and remaining here as students, listeners, hearers, in humility first. We are students. This is part of the reason why I even love the plurality that we have. I get to sit under some of the raddest teaching as a teacher here. It's not me every week. It's not you hearing me every week. It's not me laboring for you every week. I'm up here. You're down here. I get to sit in that chair as a student. I get to take the cotton out of my ears, stick it in my mouth, and be refreshed and be renewed. There's so many pastors that don't have that, that don't do that. We do here. I want you guys to know that. That's not a boast. It's a blessing that I just want to make you aware of. We got four dudes, and they feed each other. They, they feed each other. We're students. The next two things that we see here, first is reception, is examination and then application. Right? We see this in verses 22 through 25. And I would add the word strongly, self, before examination and application. Self-examination, self-application. Because it is possible, and I would, I would even add common, for us to receive a truth without having ourself in mind. It is possible for us to gain knowledge of something without appropriating that which we know to ourselves, isn't it? Uh, maybe I'm the only one here, but one of, one, of my, one of my greatest talents and abilities is hearing sermons for other people. I'm really, I'm rad at it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's times I'll be hearing something and I'll be, just the right thing, you know, I'll be like, I'll be like looking across the room like, is that person here right now? I'm really good at reading my Bible for other people. My gosh, my wife should be reading this with me right now. My kids should be reading this with me right now. In fact, this, is, this should be a refrigerator verse. I'm going to stick it on the refrigerator so that my wife and kids will see it. You know? <laughs> I know I'm the only one. How good are we at judging others with a measure that we don't even apply to ourselves? That's Matthew 7. It's funny, we love, we love claiming the blessings of God, but not the practices. Do you do that? We, we go through our Bible, and there's this whole claiming thing where we find, we find something that's so inspirational, and so it's so encouraging. This encouraging promise of blessing from God to us that can't be taken away from us. And we claim that. We pick that out. And we say, um, this, is, this is mine. 
I'm going to own this. But how many times do you come across a verse like, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and like own that? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim this verse. What's funny, though, is James goes on to say here that the one who does claim it, the one who does own it and live it out, will find blessing. Will find blessing. That's where the actual blessing is. It's not in not doing the work that Christ has put before us. It's in doing it. That's where the satisfaction is. It just seems like so much work, though. This is what James is really getting at here. He's, he's wanting us to consider for a moment that because we have already freely claimed the blessings of God through the work of Jesus, we ought to be moved and compelled to also claim the practices of Jesus, which equals more blessing. How do we do this? We do this by owning that which he has given us for us. Self-examination. You first me first, Bible reading. You first, me first, sermon listening. He wants me and you to be concerned with receiving the practices of what it looks like to follow Jesus for us through self-observation. And so an appropriate analogy follows, verses 23, 24, having to do with a mirror. Why do we look in mirrors? Why are mirrors useful? Um, and some of you can argue at this point they're, they're not useful. <laughs> we look in mirrors to see what we look like. I mean, that's kind of like the bottom line, right? The mirror is, an ac- is, is accurate at showing us if we are presentable or not, right? It shows us if we're presentable or not. And if we find that we're not presentable when we look into it, the mirror um, is the very thing that aids us in doing something about it. In fixing it. The bottom line, it gives us an accurate representation of what we look like for better or for worse. It shows us if we're having a good hair day or a bad hair day. It shows us if we got a piece of food stuck in our beard after breakfast. Right? It shows us if we have a, a Hitler mustache. I know you guys are like, did he like malfunction just now? No, like it's, it's a real thing. So like I'm a chimney guy, right? Was that you, dude? <laughs> I was trying to like remember who it was. So like I used to do chimneys for years, and uh, my kids still do it. Um, but the first few years of doing chimneys, I could not keep the soot off of me. Like no matter what I did, I couldn't keep this stuff. I mean, it's black, it's oil, it's charcoal, right? And so you would touch your face during the day, or like scratch an itch during the day, and not even not even know it, you know? And so I went through like this whole day. It was later in the day, back-to-back chimneys. I think I was in a public place. (laughs) I was in Target. You should be up here telling my story. I was in Target, and I was like grabbing something between jobs, and I see Brent. Brent comes around the corner, and he just kind of like... I did that pretty good just now. That was like you, like... Just like that. And I'm like, what's like, what's up with Brent? You know what I mean? And he finally told me, he's like, dude, you like, you like. And so I went and looked, like when I got back out to the truck, and it was a perfect Hitler mustache. Like I looked, I looked like I liked the guy. It was, it was bad. 
It was super bad. That was you, dude. That's good to know. I was like, who in the world was that that I saw? Why did I say that? That mirror would have... Thank you. That mirror would have saved my bacon had I looked in it and saw my Hitler mustache. I would have got it off my face. You know what I'm saying? Like, save me some embarrassment. When we see a flaw like that, we're going to attend to it immediately. I attended to it immediately as soon as he brought it to my attention. You know? Like, I'm going to be quick to get that silliness off of there right away. It would be ridiculous if I didn't. Wouldn't it? If he would have told me that, and I would have gone back out to the van, and I would have looked into that mirror and saw it, and been like, eh, and then gone on about my, that would be ridiculous. I'll admit, I have a good forgetter, too. Anyone in here have good forgetters? But what I found is after 47 years of living with myself, it's very selective. It's a very selective good forgetter. So, um, which is why we, we need a mirror that, like, is always accurate and never changes um, because we're going we're gonna to forget things. This doesn't, though. This doesn't allow for selective thinking, the Word of God, which is why we desperately need it every single day. There are things I'm good at forgetting, like when somebody wrongs me, or, or good at not forgetting, like when somebody wrongs me. And there's things I'm good at forgetting, like most things that have to do with my flaws or my offenses towards others. But the Bible doesn't allow me to have that selective Memory. It doesn't allow me to forget what it looks like to be presentable and unpresentable as a sinful person before a holy God. James, in his analogy, he isn't given us room to be satisfied with taking a good hard look into that perfect mirror and go, yeah, I'm ugly. See you later. Who cares? He wants us to take a good hard look into that perfect mirror and go, oh, What is that on my face? I don't like it. I want to do something about it. Guys, if we just read the Word because that's what Christians are supposed to do, but we don't do anything with what's read or anything about what's revealed to us after looking into God's perfect law of liberty, which is what James calls it here, then what are we doing? What good is it? How do we profit? How do we benefit? How are we better for it? We're not. We're actually not only not better for it, we're deceived, according to James. That's, that's tough. That's hard language. We're deceived. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It means that we think that we're getting something that we're not getting. We're deceived because we think the blessing is in the act of reading the Bible and checking the box when the real blessing is in doing what it is that we've read. That's where the blessing is. The blessing is not seeing a flaw. The blessing is in the removal of it. That they can be removed. That there's that, there's that ugly stuff in us that can be redeemed. That there's stuff in us that can be made new. I know it seems impossible. I've seen that stuff in myself all the time where I have looked at it and I have said, God, there is no way, there is no way this is ever going away. 
the second step to radical transformation and obedience. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, obedience, according to James, is an ongoing self-examination and application every time that we come to God's Word, every time. Where we own what it is that we see. Where we read this for us and not somebody else. Which leads us to the fourth thing that we see here, which is devotion. And this one's going to be a little weird for some of you. Receive, examine, application, devotion. 26 and 27, those verses. Many of us are going to find this passage very weird because it speaks of Christians as being religious. As if James is confirming religion in Christianity. That's because he is. He is. What's up with that? I'm not religious. Yes, you are. We all are. Whether we like it or not, we are religious. One of our favorite things to say to others as Christians is, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And we say it so proudly. Anyone ever done that? Use that? Yeah. Catchy phrase. And it's partially true, but because it is a relationship, that relationship brings about religious activities. The million-dollar word in the theological world for this is orthopraxy. Sounds like practice, which is an expensive way of saying practice, basically. And what James is implying here is that religion is most definitely a part of and involved in our Christianity. So what does the word religion mean? It means devotion. It means dedication toward a certain belief, piety, a certain system of faith and worship, a life practice. That's why we say things like so-and-so does such-and-such religiously. Right? We're not suggesting that they're Christians. We're not suggesting that they live within a system of belief concerning God necessarily at all. We're saying that they live out some manner of life practice, devotion, based upon their worldview, whatever their belief is. That's what we're saying. In other words, it's all, God or no God, religious activity determined by one's belief. Having said that, let me submit to you that every human being that has ever existed in some way, on some level, is religious. Even God-haters. Even God-deniers. And this is true because our object of worship is not what makes us religious, but rather the fact that we do all worship... Someone or something does. Here's the kicker. We're all worshipers. We all worship someone or something because God has created us that way. Worship is not just for the Christians. It's not just for the religious. I don't even know what that means now. It's not just for those within a faith organization. When we were created by God, He created us. To worship Him. It was installed in the DNA of every single human being that's ever existed. The problem is in the garden, it went sideways. 
And so the one and only true object of worship became any and every object of worship. Right? In other words, we can't stop worshiping. And whatever it is that we worship is what puts together and pieces together our practices of how we do life. That's just the way it works. Let me give you an example of this real quick. Um, naturalists. We live in the Northwest, right? So we all probably know a naturalist or worshipers of Mother Earth or the cosmos or however you want to say it. They're going to develop a lifestyle of Earth consciousness, right? They're typically going to recycle really well. Plastics are going to go here. Cardboards are going to go here. Like that. That's going to be one of those acts that they, they carefully commit themselves to really well. They're going to be ultra-conscious of what they eat usually, where their food comes from, how it affects the natural world, where they shop, what does this, does this company share my values and beliefs, what are their practices, philosophies, etc., in light of being eco-friendly. They will drive usually certain cars and shame other people for driving other cars. See, they... They will be committed to religious practices that leave the smallest footprint possible because that's their object of worship, nature. And these are religious activities that follow. If, uh, if someone's committed to playing video games for the rest of their life, they're going to be committed or to, they're going to practice not getting a job. <laughs> they're going to practice not moving out of their parents' house, you know? They're going to practice never getting a date, ever. No. <laughs> You know what I'm saying. Likewise, if you're a Christian holding to and believing that all that Jesus said and did is true, you will find that you will develop certain practices and devotion and dedication that falls in line with that belief. If you don't, you have other problems. And James is going to get to that in chapter 2 when he says faith without works is dead. Right? Our belief that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life will propel us into actions and practices that reflect Him as the object of our worship. And then, boom, religion exists. That I practice this right now, that you practice this right now, that I practice this regularly. Okay? And I'm not, I don't want to shame anybody with this right now, but like, this is one of those things during the week that I look forward to and that I need. I need to come here and worship with the saints. I need to come here and do what it is that we do. I need to come and hear the Word of God again. I need to come and receive your prayers. I need to come and hear your testimonies. That's why I don't come here once a month or once every other month. I'm not a recreant. The reason I come here is a religious act or practice due to what I think is true about Christ and what He has said for me. That's why I come here. The reason I read my Bible every day is because of my object of worship. The reason I pray every day is because of my object of worship. The reason I desire to be an honest human being is because of my object of worship. Those are all religious practices, devotions, because of who I worship. I want to run a business that has integrity because of who I worship. All that falls into religion. These are things I do religiously as a result of that. 
And this is what James is calling their attention to. This is actually what he's also calling them out on. We are almost there. What he's revealing and establishing before them is what a true Jesus-following devotion looks like. Because apparently they need it, and sometimes we do too. Question, have any of you seen a progression or an evolution throughout the duration of your Christian walk in the understanding of what it is to follow Christ? In in other words, when you were a new believer, did you have it in your mind that this is what it looked like to follow Jesus, only to find through the years that actually this is what it looks like to follow Jesus? Anybody? Right? So when I was a new believer, um, one of my biggest idols, which is actually still one of my biggest idols, um, is, is music. Like, I'm a, I'm a music freak. Like, I have to have a soundtrack going, like, at all times through my life. All right? And um, I had this tape, this cassette. I'm dating myself now. I had this cassette tape collection when I was a new believer um, that was, like, beautiful. Like, it was huge. Like, I spent so much money. It took me so much time to find some of these rare things. And I, and I remember thinking to myself as a young believer, if, um, if I give this up, because it means so much to me, I enjoy it so much. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so I did. I went to the local pawn shop one day. Dude looked at me sideways like I was crazy, like bringing all these cassettes in. And uh, I sold them. And then six months later, I went back and tried to find them again, and I couldn't. Like, they were gone. It's like, dang. Like, I, <laughs> I was just like, I was wrong, you know? See, That was the greatest thing I could imagine doing for God. That to me was the top of the mark. And what James is doing here in these verses is he's showing us the actual top of the mark in God's eyes of what it looks like to follow Christ. A pure and an undefiled religion, he calls it, which is an ideal one. An ideal one. A practice and a devotion that broadcasts the greatest and truest reflection of what it looks like to follow our Lord. And it is this, to love others in word and in deed. You see that there? To love others in word and in deed. That is the top of the mark. That is what it looks like to follow Christ. James is basically saying that we can be performing all kinds of neat stuff for God, but if our mouth is out of control, we're missing the practice of Christ's word. And he's saying that we can attend church every week and read our devotional every day and drop money in the box and throw up a prayer, but if we're not committed to befriending, loving, attending to the needs of the afflicted, then we are missing the mark of what it looks like to truly follow Christ, which is deed. You know, what continues to blow my mind and amaze me about Jesus, that he literally turned the world upside down by loving, committing to, attending to, going to bat for the underdogs of society. That's me. And I know that it's many of you. The ones that no one else will have anything to to do with. He didn't come to hang out with the beautiful. He didn't come to hang out with the successful. He didn't come to hang out with the popular or the powerful. He came as a light to illuminate the darkest alleys and recesses of humankind. 
He came to those who were the most vulnerable and incapable and unable, the marginalized and the needy, like widows and orphans. If we were to consider what widows and orphans have in common, it's not hard to answer it. It is that they are a people who are alone. They are alone. They are a people who are uncared for. They are a people who are unprotected and unloved, which means that in society, especially that one, they're marginalized. They're throwaways. They're desolate. And as a result of these things, they're, they're afflicted terribly. Now, know what you see here. But to me, this description portrays a hard resemblance to those who Jesus came for spiritually. Right? The spiritual, spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually desolate, the spiritually orphaned, the spiritually afflicted, the ones with no husband and the ones with no father, the ones with no security, no protection, no care, no inheritance. He came to make up for and correct all the deficits in us. And He didn't do it by saying, come over here where I am and start working your way towards something better. Claw your way out of that affliction. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and come over to where I am. Get your stuff together. He did it by leaving His rightful place in glory and coming down to where we were to gift us with something far greater than what we had. See, what James is really saying here is, you know what real religion looks like? Commitment, devotion, practice. Looks like as a Christian, as a child of God, it looks like everything that Jesus did for you. So go do it for others. Go live that out. And they will know that you're my followers. Don't just read about it. Don't just think about it. Don't just hear about it. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Live it. Apply it. Cross the kingdom finish line exhausted for the glory of Christ. And then he kind of adds, oh, and and, and by the way, as you go about living this out, be different in how you do the very end of verse 27. Be different in how you do it. Right? This one can be a challenge. Keep oneself unstained from the world, being in the world and not of the world. In other words, do it in a way that's otherworldly. When you love others in word and deed, do it in a way that's otherworldly. See, this is the other thing about Jesus that's so mind-blowing to me. It's not just what he did, it's how he did it. Right? That's what's so amazing about Christ. It's not just what he came to do, it's how he did it. It was so foreign. It's so countercultural. It's not just that He died for us that crowns Him victor. It's that He also lived a sinless life on our behalf that crowns Him victor. It's both. It is these two things together that puts Jesus in a category of His own, and so too it is for us, His followers. Will we be perfect? No. Will we be different? I pray so. Yes. 
Are we going to fail at this stuff that we've looked at today? Yes. Yes. A devotion to Christ doesn't always mean that we will succeed, but it does mean that we will want to succeed. Does that make sense? Because of Christ in us. Lord, thank you for even hard letters and even the hard stuff um, in those letters. Uh, We thank you that your word is a perfect mirror um, that never fails in giving us an accurate depiction of who you are and who we are. And then thank you for not just leaving us looking at our failures, but thank you for giving us everything that we need to deal with those failures to your glory. And so I pray that we would be a people uh, that are very interested and driven to finding blessing through obedience, through practice, through glorifying you in all that we are and all that we do. And we need you to help us do that, God. We need your spirit to energize us with everything necessary. And so we thank you, God, for loving us. We thank you, God, that ultimately at the end of the day, it's not our performance that gives us favor before you, but your son's performance that gives us favor before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.